0: All right, so uh, so last week we uh, looked uh, mainly at uh, the text of, of First Maccabees, uh, beginning in, in chapter two, and uh, stretching through the next few chapters there at the the issue of active resistance, and we contrasted. The, the active resistance of, of Mattathias and, uh, and his sons, most notably Judas Maccabeus, uh, with, the, with the passive resistance that we saw the week, or I guess a couple, would have been a couple of weeks before when uh, we had our previous lesson. And so uh, the issue was, is that we saw, uh, at one point we saw some men who were who were martyrs, who Refused to go along with the pagan program and accepted martyrdom and died. Uh, we saw those in 2 Maccabees seven, looking for the the resurrection to come. And then last week we looked at the uh, the active resistance, the even uh, the use of physical force to resist by Mattathias, Judas Maccabeus, and and so on. And so uh, we we tried then to try to evaluate whether this is a good thing or bad thing. We we saw in the text of First Maccabees that the author clearly portrayed this as a good and righteous thing, but Maccabees not being inspired, we have to take uh, we have to take the author's opinions with a grain of salt. And so we tried to look back to the prophecies in Daniel to see is this a good thing or a bad thing for uh, for the Maccabees to conduct themselves as they did. And uh, I think uh, that Daniel eleven thirty one to thirty five seems to approve the general course of the Maccabees not necessarily uh, giving its stamp of approval to everything that the Maccabees did, but nevertheless seemed to, uh, seemed to approve, broadly speaking, the, the direction in which the Maccabees were going. And then that left us with the question of whether or not there are any circumstances that are viable uh, for us as Christians to actively resist religious persecution as the Maccabees did we saw uh, some Reformation sources Heinrich Bullinger uh, Theodore Beza the Magdeburg uh, confession uh, appealing to the Maccabees and saying yes there there are times and places when this can be done now uh, I want to uh, in, in today's lesson so what I'm what I'm wanting to do is kind of to drill down on this topic a little bit and so we're not really going to be dealing with the Maccabees at all per se we're not going to be in the text of, of Maccabees we're going to try to look at uh, look at a few issues look at how uh, how some Christians in the past have handled the issue of persecution and uh, resistance versus non-resistance and uh, and then I'm going to seek to try to, to tease out some of this by by trying to untangle some threads in regard to the issue of Of civil government, the issue of self-defense, and ultimately try to try to bring down to to at least some some tentative conclusions on uh, how this may or may not apply to us. In other words, can we as Christians actively resist persecution that comes upon us? So so there's there's kind of a few uh, a few threads that, that feed into this discussion. And so what I, what I want to do first, though, is to, is to give just some, just some historical soundings and not really offer too much comment, right or wrong, on what was done. And the first, uh, the first sounding comes from, uh, from the Dutch Reformation in the 1560s. And so in the, in the 1560s, uh, what we would know as the Netherlands, Belgium, and, and Luxembourg formed what was called the 17 provinces that were under the authority of, of the Spanish. The Spanish, of course, at the Reformation are militantly Catholic and uh, wanting to uh, suppress any hint of Reformation. And so in the 1560s, the, the Reformation kind of speeds up in the, in the Netherlands, and you have uh, in, I think, 1566... Uh, what was called the the wonder year and theres uh, there's outdoor preaching, thousands of people gathering together hearing hearing reformed Protestant preaching, and uh, there's outbursts of iconoclasm where they uh, basically have these mobs tearing down uh, idolatrous statues and images and so forth and uh, and and then you have uh, there's there's other political stuff going on as well, and you have the reformed Leaders trying to think through: Can we actively resist the Spanish? What should we do? And so, what they what they came up with was uh, what was called the three million guilder request. And basically, they were they were trying to, to gather enough funds three million guilders to offer to the Spanish and say, "Hey, if we give you this money, will you let us have freedom of religion?" And um, and then they were trying to figure out, okay, what do, what do we do if this doesn't work? If they say no, then what do we do? We fight or not? And so let me let me just read a little bit. This comes from uh, this comes from Jesse Spoonhole's his book called The Convent of Wessel. He says, while not everyone who backed the three million Gilder request supported armed resistance in case it failed, the moment demanded that the reformed leaders clarify their position on whether resistance to tyrants could be justified when the true faith was suppressed, in the likely case that King Philip, King Philip of Spain, turned down their offer. So in other words, if King Philip says no, we gotta, we got to have a plan. Are we going to stand up and fight or not? And so Reformed leaders deliberated on this question in a series of synods held in Antwerp between November 1566 and January 1567. The Valcians minister Guy de Bray urged obedience, that is, obedience to the civil authorities and praised the value of martyrdom to Christ's cause. He was supported by others, such as Franciscus Junius, John Taffin, Adrianus Saravia, and Ambrosius Willy. These men were troubled by any justification of violent resistance to a lawfully instituted government, sometimes citing Romans. Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Saravia warned... That the actions of the wonder year were dangerous. Church reform should be undertaken only by a legitimate government, not by the common people. Meanwhile, the Dathanus, Moded, and their friend Joris Wybo were leaders among those who in the autumn of 1566 defended limited resistance against tyranny. Supporters of resistance defended their position by citing Acts 5.29, which urged that the faithful obey God before men. In the end, it was the latter argument that won the day. Attendees of the November Synod decided that if the government refused to accept the three million guilders, they would use that money to support the German mercenaries that the Confederation of Nobles had already begun to hire. Later synods in December 1566 and January 1567 confirmed this decision. And so uh, at the end of the day, the Reformed pastors uh, meeting together decided that, hey, if, if he doesn't take this take this money to give us freedom of religion we're going to we're going to use this money to hire german mercenaries to come in and help us uh, resist uh, resist governmental tyranny and and ultimately they were they were going to be fighting for dutch independence and so that was that was their decision now in, in a very different set of circumstances um, in in france in the 1680s 1685 uh, the French King Louis XIV revoked uh, the right of uh, the Protestant Huguenots to, to worship openly. And so all the Huguenot churches were closed down. Huguenot ministers were given two weeks to, to leave the country. And uh, Protestants were, were forced to uh, have their have their children baptized and brought up as Roman Catholics and, and so on. And so uh, one of the questions then confronting those who had been Huguenots was what they should do. And so I want to read just a little bit about a, about a fellow named Claude Browson who uh, offers a, uh, an interesting, uh, interesting perspective into his actions and then his uh, actual change of policy as things went on. Claude Browson had been a lawyer and then, uh, and then felt a call to preach. And so uh, this, is, this is the story of Claude Browson, although he was a lawyer and not a pastor in July 1689, so about four years after this persecution had started, Broussin felt a divine call to return to France with nine other exiles. He had his sermons, prayers, and pastoral letters printed for distribution to the faithful and even created a small laptop reading stand, which he called his Desert Table. With funding from Swiss merchants and bankers, the group infiltrated the seven ends, splitting into twos and threes. Soon, Browson was preaching three-hour sermons three times a week to crowds numbering in the hundreds gathered in caves or valleys or on mountain slopes. When the government spies informed them of Browson's return, the intendant put a bounty of 5,000 livres on his head, alive or dead. In short, dragoons, infantry, bourgeois militias, and hundreds of bounty hunters working with false brothers hunted for him. His amazing success in eluding all of them came at a high price. He was forced to seek shelter in damp caves, dense forests, and rocky caverns. He slept on straw under trees in rocky clefts, or, if lucky, in attics and secret cupboards behind false walls in believers' homes. Walking hundreds of miles amid summer's heat, autumn rains, and winter's drifting snow, he dared not light a fire lest the smoke betray him. Frequently cold, hungry, and thirsty, he suffered from mortal fatigues, splitting headaches, Frightening nightmares. To thwart pursuit, he frequently changed his name and his disguises. With death, a daily possibility, he declared, If I must die, tis better dying in the way of duty than in the, in the neglect of it. Bowing to public pressure on Christmas Day, 1689, Browson, now 42, allowed his preaching partner, Francois Vivint, to ordain him. Following the consecration prayer and the laying on of hands, Browson preached a lengthy sermon, 48 printed pages on 1 Corinthians 11, and administered the bread and wine for the first time. Normally, between 200 and 4,000 believers attended his outdoor communion services, which typically lasted three to four hours and were often followed by infant baptisms or weddings. In addition, he held three or four meetings each week after dark, 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. in thick forests, secluded fields, or caves far from roads and prying eyes. These services typically included uh, the reading of the French Confession of Faith, praying, singing psalms, reading from the Gospels, listening to a long sermon, reciting the Ten Commandments or the Beatitudes, and singing a closing psalm followed by prayer. By day he slept, wrote letters, and made surreptitious home visits. He also distributed his printed sermons and tracts and formed underground consistories through the Languedoc region. How to protect the faithful from dragoon attacks, during such protracted meetings divided pastoral opinion. Some preachers posted armed guards, while others trusted in the sword of the Spirit. Early in their ministry, the zealots Brausen and Vivent set armed sentries around their encampments. Despite these precautions, an apostate betrayed the colloquy of Uzes near Brignan, where Brausen and four thousand worshippers had gathered. Suddenly government troops charged in, Slashing many with their sabers, wounding others with musket balls, and bayonetting others. Assaults such as this often killed 60 to 80 worshippers, while dozens more were hauled away to prison or the galleys. By the early 1690s, Louis XIV and uh, the local government were investing staggering amounts of money, 800,000 livres, over six months in Languedoc alone, to stop these assemblies. Urged by friends to go into hiding, Brousson found refuge with friends and between 1691 and 1693, he returned to his writing. And so uh, he's, uh, he's doing some writing, doing some preaching, and, uh, and yet let's, let's hear a little bit more about, about his, his approach to the issue of resistance. Browson's five-year mission in France had changed him as well. Just as Jean-Claude had influenced his rhetorical combat against Catholicism, so his collaborator, Francois Vivint, had helped define Browson's relationship to armed resistance. Vivint, 12 years younger than Browson, had been a teacher, but the Dragoon's brutality and the Cervens had transformed him into a fanatical preacher. Untrained in theology, he preached extemporaneous sermons full of anger toward Roman Catholic leaders in 1686. The governor put a bounty on his head, uh, on the head of this short, knock-kneed fanatic. Browson had praised Vivint as pure and holy, with the piety of an angel, a man with the gift of praying in a most extraordinary degree. Yet Vivent also favored a muscular approach to spreading the gospel. By 1687, he had not only posted armed guards around his encampments, but had also preached armed resistance against Louis XIV. When dragoons attacked one of his assemblies and captured several worshipers, Vivent and 30 companions counterattacked and freed them. As Vivent's fame as a preacher, guerrilla fighter, and agent for William of Orange grew after 1690, the governor raised his bounty to 100 gold Louis. His wife, brother, and several friends were arrested and banished to the West Indies. Consequently, when the two men started their joint ministry in 1689-1690, Browson and Vivint both wore swords and shared a double goal, reviving Calvinism by preaching and distributing books and fomenting a revolt against a king who had revoked the irrevocable. While Browson did not travel with an armed bodyguard as Vivint did, both men associated with those who displayed their weapons at public assemblies. In August 1689, Browson requested a good captain to disperse the royal troops who harassed his services. On one occasion, he, Vivent, and 15 men armed with muskets and swords disarmed some soldiers and freed their reformed prisoners. On another occasion, Browson and Vivent mustered 100 men armed with guns and halberds to disarm the troops at Florac. They freed some prisoners and wounded several militiamen who tried to stop them. But Vivint's cold-blooded murder of a Roman Catholic priest in the spring of 1691 constituted the last straw for Browson. He angrily reproached Vivint, calling him a man of blood. Thereafter, the two friends went their separate ways. In 1692, Vivint and three of his companions were surrounded by dragoons in the cavern and shot to death. Browson, laying aside his sword, fled. Henceforth, he urged everyone who attended his assemblies not to bring guns or swords with them. In a work of 1692, he confessed that early in his ministry, he was surrounded by a prodigious number of enemies who sought unceasingly to kill him and had taken several precautions to defend his life. But henceforth, he would fight only with the sword of the Spirit, trusting God to protect him, rejecting even the rhetoric of violence. He turned his back on Vivint, and promised to become the mystical dove, and so, uh, and so, Brousson had early in his ministry favored this kind of violent counterattack approach. You mess with us, get ready. We're gonna we're gonna shoot you. We're gonna hunt you down. And this was, uh, I think, it's notable that this is uh, this is armed resistance against government authority. This is not armed resistance against a terrorist or you know some crazy fanatic who comes into a a uh, legal. Uh, as defined by the government, worshiping assembly; uh, they, these are illegal assemblies, as defined by the government. And he was uh, in favor of, uh, I guess you'd say, using using force to uh, to defend, if necessary, killing those who would attack. And so, uh, these are just just some some soundings. And so, part of the issues that we need to to think about, then to. To think about this subject is the issue of civil government and the issue of self defense and so I think as we as we try to untangle some of some of these threads and, and try to drill down and, and think about this, I think part of the part of the question that we need to think about is the is the use of the civil government and Christian participation in that and the uh, the civil government, even protecting Christians, and what role that would play, and then a second thing we need to think about is the legitimate or illegitimate use of self-defense, and then we'll try to try to bring some things together and and proceed from there. And so, um, in the in the Reformation, you had two very different approaches to civil government, and so you had, on the one hand, you had the uh, what are traditionally called the magisterial reformers like Luther and Calvin who basically worked with government authority in the reform of the church and so Luther and Calvin didn't want the governing authorities to have authority in the church they wanted they wanted the church to be able to do what the church needs to do without government interference but yet nevertheless they, uh, they wanted an established church of, of the state they didn't Believe in a a a wall of separation, as as we say between uh, between church and state. And then on the other extreme hand of things, you had the the Anabaptists, who basically said that it is illegitimate for Christians even to participate in the government at all. Not not simply that we we don't want government interference in the church; they would say it's illegitimate for uh, for Christians to participate. And this they they made this explicit in. Uh, and what was called the Schlettheim Confession of Faith. And let me just read a, uh, a couple of sections, one, one or two sections here from the from the Schletheim Confession of Faith, where they're they're very clear that uh, that this is uh, this is out of bounds for, for Christians, and we'll hear we'll hear their their defense of this. And so, uh, this uh, is the sixth section of their confession. They say, "We are agreed as follows concerning the sword." The sword is ordained of God outside the perfection of Christ. It punishes and puts to death the wicked and guards and protects the good. In the law, the sword was ordained for the punishment of the wicked and for their death, and the same sword is now ordained to be used by the worldly magistrates. In the perfection of Christ, however, only the ban is used, that is, excommunication. Only the ban is used for a warning and for the excommunication of the one who has sinned without putting the flesh to death, simply warning and the command to sin no more. Now it will be asked by many who do not recognize this as the will of Christ for us, whether a Christian may or should employ the sword against the wicked for the defense and the protection of the good or for the sake of love. Our reply is unanimously as follows. Christ teaches and commands us to learn of him. For he is meek and lowly in heart, so, and so shall we find rest for our souls. Also, Christ says to the heathenish woman who was taken in adultery, not that one should stone her according to the law of his father, and yet, as he says, as the father has commanded me, thus I do, but in mercy and forgiveness and warning to sin no more. Such an attitude we also ought to take completely according to the rule of the ban. Secondly, it will be asked concerning the sword whether a Christian shall pass sentence in a worldly dispute and strife such as unbelievers have with one another. This is our united answer. Christ did not wish to decide or pass judgment between brother and brother in the case of an inheritance but refused to do so. Therefore, we should do likewise. Thirdly, it will be asked concerning the sword. Shall one be a magistrate if one should be chosen as such? The answer is as follows. They wish to make Christ a king, but he fled and did not view it as the arrangement of his fathers. Thus shall we do as he did and follow him, and so shall we not walk in darkness. For he himself said, he who wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Also, he himself forbids the employment of of the force of the sword, saying, The worldly princes lord it over them, but not so shall it be with you. Further, Paul says, Whom God did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Also, Peter says, Christ has suffered, not ruled, and left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Finally, it will be observed that it is not appropriate for a Christian to serve as a magistrate because of these points. The government magistracy is according to the flesh, but the Christians is according to the spirit. Their houses and dwelling remain in this world, but the Christian citizenship is in heaven. The weapons of their conflict and war are carnal and against the flesh only, but the Christians' weapons are spiritual against the fornication of the devil. The worldlings are armed with steel and iron, but the Christians are armed with the armor of God, with truth and righteousness, peace faith, salvation, and the word of God. In brief, as is the mind of Christ toward us, so shall the mind of the members of the body of Christ be through him in all things, that there may be no schism in the body through which it would be destroyed. For every kingdom divided against itself will be destroyed. Now since Christ is as, as it is written of him, his members must also be the same, that his body may remain complete and united to its own advancement and upbuilding. And so, uh, there's a lot said there, but, but the basic point that they're going for is that uh, Christians are called to love, are called not to resist, and uh, therefore, what that means is that it is illegitimate for a Christian to take up the sword, even as a magistrate. They're very clear that, yeah, we think God has given the sword to the magistrate, but Christians, Christians can't have anything to do with that. Now, in the uh, in the magisterial reformers were were very clear that no, this is this is not the way things should go down, and so and so this is why kind of pushing back against the Anabaptists in a number of confessions of faith, Protestant and Lutheran, uh, you you see very explicit rejections of this of this kind of this kind of approach, and so. Um, uh, so the Lutheran, Lutheran Book of Concord, 1580, uh, they, uh, they push back on this. And I think it's also noteworthy that uh, the Second London Baptist Confession, 1689, pushes back on this as well. Now, they don't explicitly call out the, the Anabaptists, but they, they are very clear that this is not their approach. And so this is, uh, this is Second London, Chapter 24, uh, Part 2. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate When called thereunto, in the management whereof, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth, for uh, that end they may lawfully now, uh, under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So, the Anabaptists in the Confession said, "No, no, no, we can't, can't be a magistrate, can't take the sword under any circumstances." And uh, Second London Baptist Confession, kind of, I think, is just a, a helpful statement showing uh, that even, even the English Baptists are pushing back against this. Let alone um, Lutherans, Anglicans, other Reformed folks. They're, they're pushing back pretty, pretty hard against this. That no, 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 Christians actually can take up the sword. Therefore. That means these these passages about non-resistance, turning the other cheek, et cetera, don't mean exactly what the Anabaptists were uh, were saying concerning them, and and I think this is a helpful thing for us to consider in uh, in our day because I think uh, I read somewhere and I I uh, put the line in the in the handout that that sometimes in uh, contemporary Evangelical civic or political engagement. There's a little bit of Anabaptist light going on, you might say. In the, they might they might not say straight up we're pacifists. We can't can't be magistrates, etc. Nevertheless, I think sometimes there is a uh, an aura of thinking in which in which uh, people are basically kind of regard regard politics and. Uh, civil government, civil administration, as something that's almost too too dirty for uh, for Christians to uh, to get involved with. And uh, I gave the title there in the uh, in the notes of this article uh, that was published in the Federalist back in uh, uh, back in 2016, for the 2016 election. And it was the article was called "Must a Christian Vote for Nero?" That's a rather provocative. Question, but, uh, but but nevertheless, what what the article was was pushing would be what I would what I would consider this this Anabaptist light uh, theory of uh, of civic engagement, and um, and so just to just to give one one example, he uh, well maybe I'll give a couple examples. He said in in one of his points that. Uh, that live peace, that the command to live peaceably with all might be incompatible with our politics. Um, he said another one of his point was, "You can't love through government or politics." I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. I think, I think just laws for preserving life is actually loving our neighbor. Having, having a police force that will keep people safe is actually loving our neighbor. Having politicians who will help keep those police forces on the street actually loving our neighbor. And, um, and then he, uh, his, his final question as he was working through this was, what about abortion? And he, you know, he gets that abortion is, is really bad and sinful. Um, but he, he mentions a couple of things. One, he feared that the issue of abortion is a gateway drug for Christians to get involved in politics and that then they'll become engrossed in, in the issue. And another thing that he, he said was that there was abortion in the Roman Empire and abortions in the Roman Empire didn't end because of, because of laws and politics and government involvement. It ended because people became Christians. Or the basic, the, basically the Christian argument won the day. Now, I can't speak historically to the issue of abortion in the Roman Empire. I know that abortion existed back then and, uh, and that Christians did stand up against it. How it ended, I don't know. But I will say this, that uh, we can think of uh, we can think of terrible things in more recent times that did not end because hearts were changed so much as because governments stepped in and put an end to it. So just for instance, think of the uh, the British uh, transatlantic slave trade. This did not come to an end because all of the British slave ship captains. And those involved said, "Oh, wow, this is really bad. We shouldn't be doing this." This ended because William Wilberforce and a bunch of uh, politically activated people stepped up and got a bill passed through Parliament that we're not we're not doing this anymore. Think of uh, think of the Jim Crow laws here in our country. Jim Crow didn't go away simply because everybody uh, everybody adopted more Christ-like attitudes. Jim Crow went away because civil government stepped in and enforced integration and and so on. And so I think I I think there are some some Anabaptist light tendencies that are that are sometimes being being pushed and uh, and not not too helpful. And so let's let's look then at some of these texts about about the issue of of non-resistance, because obviously we do, we do have some biblical texts that, that seem to speak to the issue of, of non-resistance. So let's look at what might be the, the first and maybe most obvious one in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, so Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 38 to 43. So Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile with him, go two. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So, what do we do with this? Do not resist an evil person. Does this mean... Never, under any circumstances, are we to resist an evil person. What about when that person is seeking to take your life? What about when that person is seeking to commit a rape? What if the evil person is a toddler who has just bitten his mother and has slapped her right cheek? Is Jesus suggesting that we ought to let sinful toddlers run wild while we just stand with with arms folded and say, well not allowed to resist an evil person. Mom looks like you better turn the other cheek so the junior can slap the other side. Is, is this what Jesus means? Well, I, don't, I don't think any reasonable person would say this is what Jesus means. So so the question then is, how do we apply this text? And as we as we try to think about the question here, I think a big part of our answer is going to depend on how we understand what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. Is Jesus, as it were, correcting Old Testament law, or is Jesus correcting Jewish-slash-Pharisaical misunderstandings and misapplications of Old Testament law? And I would, I would lean toward the latter, right? If you look back to, uh, to what Jesus had said earlier there in Matthew chapter 5, he said that he had not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so, uh, just in in thinking about how to how to actually apply... Uh, the the Old Testament law, I think uh, I think Francis Turretin offered some some helpful thoughts. And so let me just let me just read a little bit from uh, from Turretin. And I think I think he he comes at things from a from a helpful helpful angle. So so this is this is Turretin. He says when he Jesus bids. Whoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And If any man shall take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Christ does not change the implanted law of nature, which teaches us to repel injury and force by force. Rather, he only condemns retaliation when to the defense of oneself is added revenge and an equal or greater injury. These words must be understood proverbially and hyperbolically, not according to the letter. For Christ Himself did not turn the other cheek when the one uh, when the one was smiting Him, John eighteen twenty three. Nor did Paul, Acts twenty three three. The meaning then is that it is better to be ready to suffer a new injury than to return an equal injury or recompense evil for evil, and that too. Under the pretext of a divine law concerning retaliation, thus the adversative, as often elsewhere, includes under it a comparison. And so, in in short, what uh, what Turretin says, and I, and I think is is right here, is that is that we we need to understand Christ's words here in a, in the hyperbolic sense, kind of along the same lines of where Christ says that you have to hate your father and mother. Obviously, he doesn't mean that I, as a Christian, now and to have. Raging hatred and anger towards my mother and father—that's directly contradictory to the Ten Commandments, right? That's that's not allowed. I'm to honor and obey my my father and my mother. And so, the the point is, is that is that we are as Christians to have a to, to be slow to anger and very uh, very cautious in uh, in seeking to uh, to right how we perceive ourselves to be wronged, right? We're supposed to be, be quick to forgive, quick to quick to love. And and so the the Old Testament law had clearly said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and Christ saying, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, is I think a way of, of Christ saying, don't take revenge beyond uh don't don't take private revenge, right? that that when when wrongs are, are done, they need to be handled and settled in an orderly and just way. It's not us personally seeking to to take revenge against a person. We're to be to be loving and gentle, but that doesn't mean that we're called to be to be doormats. And so, uh, so that's that's one text that I think uh, the uh, the the Anabaptists and, and those of like mind would have probably probably stood upon and uh, and said okay well this this means no resistance that means under any circumstances they try to kill me okay they can they can kill me um, another another text that is helpful for us to consider in, in as we kind of think about these things is, is Hebrews 10 Hebrews 10 uh, clearly outlines what believers in the first century had had suffered These to whom the author is writing had, had suffered these things. So he said, But remember, the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one, and I think a passage like like Hebrews ten ties in uh, very appropriately with some of those passages that we considered maybe maybe three weeks ago when we were looking at the issue of martyrdom and the call to to suffer as uh, as Christ's people, and so we need to be we need to be very very open that uh, that Christ calls us to suffer, Christ calls us to, to take up our cross, Christ. Calls us to be willing to to lay down our lives, and uh, and then the New Testament epistles are uh, well. We see it we see it here in Hebrews. I think uh, First Peter is another another epistle where we where we see this call to suffer very very clearly laid out. And so, whatever we think in terms of uh, of the issue of of just defense and uh, self preservation and so on. We have to acknowledge that that suffering and persecution is a very real calling upon ourselves as Christians. And uh, and another another passage Romans Romans twelve eighteen. And so in in Romans twelve, Paul says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men." That's the the default position for us as Christians. If possible, be at peace with all men. We can think of uh, the issue of, of lawsuits that was going on in 1 Corinthians and where Christians were suing one another, and Paul says, why not rather be wronged than, than take part in these kind of things? The, the default position for us as Christians is to be at peace. But he does add the caveat, if possible. John Gill commented on Romans twelve eighteen and said, if it be possible... Which is rightly put, for there are some persons of such tempers and dispositions that it is impossible to live peaceably with. For when others are for peace, they are for war. And in some cases, it is not only impracticable, but would be unlawful. As when it cannot be done consistent with holiness of life and conversation, with the edification of others, the truths of the gospel, the interest of religion, and the glory of God. These are things that are never to be sacrificed for the sake of peace with men. And so, uh, and so on the one hand, we need to we need to be cautious when we're when we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, not to overly uh, not to read an overly literalistic application of these things. An application which, as we saw in the case of the toddler, cannot be sustained across the board, right? And then on the other hand, we need to to recognize from passages like like Hebrews ten and Romans twelve that our default position is to to live at peace, but Paul gives the caveat. If possible, and so uh, and so so those are those are some texts in regard to to the issue of of resistance and conducting ourselves peaceably. Um, the issue, the next issue that I wanted to talk to a little bit about is the is the issue of the civil government and what what role does the civil government play? What role can Christians play in in the issue of the of the civil government? And the first text that I that I listed there is not an explicitly governmental text at all, but nevertheless, understanding that God works by means, uh, God could use the means of government to bring this about. So Psalm 119, 134 says, redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Now Sometimes God answers a prayer like that supernaturally, perhaps, in Delivering a person from oppression. Sometimes God works by means, by means of governments who protect citizens, who protect uh, the right of their citizens to to worship God, and so forth. We're familiar with uh, with Romans thirteen, um, and so I don't I don't know that we need to necessarily look at Romans thirteen. But the the book of Isaiah has some some interesting prophecies concerning uh, concerning the church and concerning the. Uh, the way in which the church will be ministered unto by kings. And so uh, just to look at one of those texts, Isaiah 49:23 says that kings will be your guardians and princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. and you will know that I am the Lord. those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. And so far from uh, far from saying that kings and princesses are always enemies of the church, as it would almost appear that the Anabaptists would be saying, Isaiah prophesies the day when kings and princesses will be will be helpful to the church and will support the church and the, the preaching of the gospel. And um, and so I think that I think that's a helpful helpful text to, to keep in mind as we think about the uh, the issue of, of Christians participating in civil government and seeking to, to do good and helpful things for the church. And then the, kind of the next issue that I wanted to touch on is the issue of self-defense. And I think that's, that's kind of a, a big one for, for thinking about this issue as we think about the, the conduct of the, of the Maccabees and whether or not there can be any application to us. And so I think the big text for, for self-defense is Exodus 22 verse two. So let's let's flip there to Exodus 22 verse two, and uh, take a look take a look there. And so, and it's probably be helpful to read uh, to read verses two and three just to show uh, show the contrast. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. And so I think I think the distinction between Exodus 22-2 and Exodus 22-3 is the issue of the thief breaking in at night. Twenty-two two seems to assume that the thief is breaking in at night. And so uh, it seems that the scenario envisioned by the law is that you have this thief breaking in. Nobody knows for sure what this guy's up to. Somebody whacks him. He dies. And the law says there's no blood guiltiness on his account. Nobody nobody gets in trouble for the fact that this guy died because it was night. Nobody knew what his intentions were. And then, but contrast that with verse 3, but if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guiltiness on his account. And, and it seems that the uh, scenario envisioned in verse 3 is that if you've got a daytime thief sneaking around, you know, he's trying to, trying to grab something out in the barn or whatever, you come around and whack him, and you can tell that this guy is not, is not coming after anybody. He's not, he's not trying to kill anybody. He's just trying to, trying to grab some tools out of the tool shed or whatever. And you, you whack this guy and you kill him. This is not, uh, this is not a just... A just thing, because with the guy at night nobody nobody knows what's going on there with the guy who comes around in the daytime, you can see if he's if he's a if he's a thief and all he's doing is thievery, he doesn't deserve to die just for the thievery, and so on his account, there will be blood guiltiness and um and so and so we have that one uh, verse there, and then I think also in the issue of of defense this is not. Uh, not speaking of a not not explicitly speaking of a defense in which someone is killed, but clearly a defense in which an evil attempt is thwarted by force uh, this is deuteronomy twenty two uh, verses twenty three through twenty seven um, If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate and You shall stone them to death, the girl because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. And so so again, we have a case law here, two contrasting situations. One, you have a rape that takes place in the city, and uh, they are both guilty because, uh, because the law assumes, Moses assumes, the Lord assumes, that... Uh, that if this girl is, is upright and godly and someone is trying to attack her in this way, she's going to cry out. And if she cries out, then there's going to be some help that comes in and stops this man from doing this wicked thing. And the assumption is also made in the second case law that if out in the rural area, out in the field, this kind of scenario happens, a girl is engaged and is attacked, then it assumes that the girl did cry out, but no one was there, uh, no one was there around to help her because of the rural nature of the area, and so and so again you have this. This is not uh, this is not uh, do not resist an evil person as a as a blanket law. Right there's supposed to be active resistance toward evil. And again, Turretin I think is, is helpful on this issue of self defense. And so let me let me read a section from Turretin where he offers some some comments on uh, on the Exodus twenty two passage. And he's he's dealing with the uh, sixth commandment, "You shall not murder." And uh, he he has this to say. He says, "Defensive homicide is not forbidden when anyone, for the purpose of defending." His own life against a violent and unjust aggressor, keeping within the limits of a lawful protection, kills another. To be considered as lawful protection, it is necessary, one, that the aggressor unjustly assails and falls upon us, two, that the defender be placed beyond all blame while every other way of escaping morally by speaking or flying or yielding is shut against him, three, that the defense be made during the very attack and not after it is over, for that nothing is done by him, either under the impulse of anger or with the feeling and desire of revenge, but with the sole intention of defending himself. And so he lays out there four four necessary qualifications for self-defense. One, that the aggressor is unjustly assailing and falling upon us. This is not a police officer arresting you because you just robbed the liquor store. This is this, this doesn't count. You don't you don't, you don't you don't get to uh, to kill under that circumstance, obviously. Secondly, the defender be placed beyond all blame. Every other way of escape is is shut against you. And so you you basically have no other no other option. You're cornered. They're coming to kill you, coming to murder you, and you've got no other way out. Three, The defense is made during the very attack and not after it's over. It's not this guy comes at you with a knife, tried to cut your throat, missed, ran away, and then you pull out the gun and shoot him. That's that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about during the very attack and not after it is over. And fourth, that this is not done in anger or with a desire for revenge. This is not uh, trying to render tit for tat, but this is the sole purpose of self-defense. And Turchin goes on, he says, The reason is clear. Although it is not lawful to return like for like to avenge oneself, still to repel force by force and to defend oneself belongs to natural and perpetual right, especially where the aggression is simply violent and destitute of all public authority, even unto the slaying of the aggressor, although not intended by itself, but inasmuch as we cannot do otherwise, uh, defend our lives and free ourselves from unjust oppression. Nor do civil laws... uh, alone approve of this, as is, uh, as is evidenced, and he, uh, he gives some, some old laws supporting this. He says, but God himself is found to have intimated this clearly in the law where a case of private defense is set forth from which a judgment can be formed concerning the practice of that law. If a thief be found breaking up in the very act and be smitten that he die, there shall be no blood shed for him." Exodus twenty-two, two: if the sun has risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, if doubtless the slayer could discover that he had come only for the purpose of stealing and not for killing. However, such defense is wrongfully extended to the preservation or recovery of honor, oftentimes imaginary, whose idol the devil has set up in the world that offering may be made to it with human blood, both because honor can be... Uh, Recovered, but life never, and because such slaughter would not pertain to lawful defense but to unlawful revenge. But lawful defense is properly referred to the defense of life, whether our own or our neighbors, especially when they are bound to us by somewhat closer ties, as our parents, wives, children, friends, and the like. For he who does not repel an injury from another when he can is as much to blame as he who commits it. It is to be referred to the defense of chastity, either of our own or another's. As the examples of brave virgins stand forth who killed those who attempted to violate their chastity when they could in no other way escape, just as many laws permit the father or the husband to kill with impunity the violator of a daughter or a wife, taken in the act. Blameless protection is not prohibited in Romans twelve nineteen, but private revenge, as the words show. Nor does he who justly defends his own life do it by a private undertaking, but by the public authority of the law of nature. The injunctions to love our enemies do not take away the necessary defense of life, because the foundation of the love for neighbors is the love of ourselves. The passage in Matthew 26:52, in which our Lord orders Peter to put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword, does not take away just self-defense. This had the appearance not so much of defense, which would have been useless against so great a multitude, as of revenge. Again, he had not waited for the command of the Lord, who had no need of such a defender, but had acted precipitately. And so, in other words, uh, Turretin, in short, sees Exodus 22-2 as the case law that, uh, that permits us, even as New Testament believers, to, uh, to act in self-defense. But he's very clear this has nothing to do with, with revenge. This has nothing to do with the recovery of honor if we think that someone has slighted us or, or something of that nature, but nevertheless has, uh, has application only in the realm of of self-defense and so so we've got again several several threads going on here we've got civil government we've got issues of, of self-defense Christians participating or not participating in civil government and so what do we do if we as believers are uh, attacked for our religious beliefs religious practices etc what do we do well um, I've uh, I've formed some tentative conclusions I'm open to, to learning more and coming to uh, greater uh, uh, more more biblical more uh, more wise conclusions, but this is this is roughly kind of my own my own personal assessment, and so I think as we as we think about these things there 's a distinction that needs to be made between a private persecution and a public persecution. A private persecution is uh, somebody who uh, let's just say, is radicalized against Christians. He doesn't like them, and he decides, okay, I'm going to get some high-powered gun, go to a church, shoot up a bunch of Christians because I don't like them. Um, that's what we might call private persecution. Public persecution is uh, was kind of the situation in France, right, after uh, after the revocation of the edict that allowed Protestants to worship freely, and now you've got governmental troops under government authority coming to uh, to quash these, uh, secretive gatherings where, uh, where there's preaching and, and the, the Lord's Supper going on and, and so forth. And so that would, be, that would be public persecution. And then a couple of other distinctions that we need to make are public resistance versus private resistance. Public resistance would be, say, um, let's just say hypothetically that you have a village or town in Afghanistan right now that says, okay, uh, the Taliban is coming, gunning for Christians. We've got a lot of Christians in our town. We're not standing up for that. We're we're going to organize a local militia and under our civil authority, we're going to defend and protect the believers. That would be that would be public resistance, where you have a government standing up for uh, for Christian citizens. Private resistance would be a private person. Uh, Basically kind of trying to, trying to stand in the gap, either for themselves or for their church. Whoever it is, is is coming against me, against us, I'm going to try to defend us. That would be private resistance. And so, so we've got those, those four categories. Private persecution, public persecution, private resistance, and public resistance. As for myself, again, I think I've probably still got some processing to do, but I would lean towards saying that in regard to private persecution. When a Christian is being persecuted by a a private person and not uh, not by a uh, a public government, and sometimes it's going to be unclear whether a Christian is being attacked just randomly or whether they're being attacked specifically for their religious uh, for religion's sake. And so, God forbid that we should ever have you know an active shooter or something like that here in church. But if that happens we don't, we don't know immediately whether they're persecuting us for religion's sake or whether they are simply attacking people because they had a bad day and that's what they want to do is, is kill people we, we don't know and so what I would say is that private private christians as, as private citizens can can defend themselves when private persecution comes when it's not lawfully uh, ordained by the civil government then we as private citizens can defend ourselves. This applies, I would say, whether it's being persecuted for the sake of religion or being persecuted for the sake of, or being attacked for, for any other reason. The, that we as Christians can uh, protect ourselves, our church members, our families, and so forth. I think the, the issue gets more complicated when you have, uh, when you have public government sanctioned persecution. And opposition. I think that, God forbid, again that uh, say the uh, the federal government uh, decides we're going to outlaw Christianity and uh, church services are declared illegal. You have to bow before some shrine or whatever. I think that when you've got a situation like that, we should hope that uh, the state of Maryland or our local governments will will stand up and defend our rights. But if they don't, I think at that point we need to take the hit and just say, okay, you can cart me off to prison, you can kill me, you can do whatever, do whatever I've got to do, and uh, I'm going to, to stand for Christ. And so I think uh, I think in a situation like that, it would be, uh, in my estimation, the time to, uh, to apply Christ's words that if they persecute you in one place, flee to the next. Um, but sometimes you can flee and flee no further. So those are, I realize that's Kind of a, a long meandering path to to land right where we did. Um, I'd be open to one or two questions or comments, but I think we're think we're about about out of time. So any any questions, comments? Stan? Yeah. Uh, some, some oh, the uh, the two swords. Um, I I've I've thought about that text and it's it's uh, it is a it is an interesting text and I I'm not hundred percent clear on it the commentators that I've consulted on that um, don't uh, they, they basically essentially kind of take this in in terms of, of a hyperbolic statement or a proverbial statement that now things are, are going to get hard for you guys not as get a sword now it's time to defend yourself and so I'm not I'm not I haven't I'm not sure I've entirely planted my feet on on that text, but it is, yeah, it is a, it is a good one, and I think relevant, or at least potentially relevant to the discussion, yeah. So I don't know any, yeah, Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that's a. Yeah, and I think I think that's that's what uh that's what the the argument for the, for the french people was was they were saying that the louis the 14th has revoked something that is irrevocable and so and so then they uh they saw themselves as kind of kind of standing in the gap trying to trying to organize an, an insurrection and and all of that and i think um i guess i guess i would say that at at that point obviously yeah and and if they it, if they've done it without amending the Constitution, then uh, obviously they're they're in they're in a bad place. But I I guess I'd be hesitant to to say that we as private citizens now you know hope, hopefully somebody in the in the chain of command somewhere would stand in the gap. But I'd be I'd be leery of saying we as private citizens uh, should should be the ones to to stand in the gap and try to try to right that wrong. That would be that would be my. My take on it at this point, but some of some of these things, as as was pointed out last week, you're never going to really know what you do until until you're right there. Um, I think it's helpful to kind of think about these things and have some of these categories and work through some of the texts and and think about them maybe in a little more a little more deeply than we have before. But but yeah, on some of these things, I think we need to have consciences and hearts that are that are informed by Scripture and. Pray to God for grace when, when the moment comes that we'll we'll do the, the godly things. Dan? I think one one other thing too, right? If you look at these historical examples, right? It, it'd be different, you know, if okay, say that this assembly is illegal and please come and they carve us off, that's a whole lot different than coming here with swords and starting to slash. Yeah, right. And right. I'm guessing some <laughs> of us <will> would <laughs> and others. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good 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 point. Good point. Um. All right, we're we're over time now, so let me let me just close for us in prayer, and, and we'll be done. Father, we have talked about a perplexing subject this morning, and Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us wisdom, that we would know how to rightly understand and apply your Word uh, to our lives. Lord, we we thank you for the the peace and freedom that we enjoy. As believers, we pray, the Lord, that that would continue long in our country, that we uh, would be able to worship you in peace and freedom, that you would redeem us from the oppression of man so that we may follow after your commandments. And, uh, Lord, we pray that uh, so long as we do have peace and freedom, that we would use it well, that we would evangelize, that we would disciple, that we would worship you. And, uh, Lord, we uh, we thank you for your grace and your kindness, and uh, we ask your your blessing to be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.